I wonder if God loves me and I wonder if he cares. That's what one man said to me after he and his wife had been trying for a, a baby for years. They'd, they'd actually come to terms with the thought that they would be childless when she found herself pregnant. They began to prepare for parenthood during the pregnancy and then at a 20-week scan, they were dealt a, a devastating blow, being told that there was a strong possibility that their child would be severely handicapped. When she was born, their worst nightmares became reality. And he said to me, I wonder if God loves me. I wonder if he cares. Uh, Through my years in pastoral ministry, a number of people have expressed the same doubt, questioning God's love through their own personal suffering and tragedy. Why is this happening to me? If God is a loving God and I'm one of his children, why am I suffering like this? Does God love me? So far in this series we've considered uh, the origins of suffering and we looked in the first week at a sort of suffering on a global scale. Uh, Last week we asked uh, whether suffering disproves the existence of God. Uh, This week as we look at the cross of Jesus Christ we'll see that living in a world of pain is sure to leave us with questions yet the cross assures us that God loves us. Whatever our circumstances, whatever our suffering... When we fix our eyes upon the cross of Christ, we see a God who loves us, a God who understands, and a God who suffers for us to end suffering for us. Well, the first point on the sheet then, in suffering, God loves us. Uh, Christian, let me ask you this morning, how do you know God loves you? Do you believe God loves you because you have good health, because you have clothes to wear and food on the table? Are you sure of God's love for you because you have a roof over your head and a steady income? Do you have a certainty about God's love when your prayers are answered, when your circumstances turn out well for you, when the sun shines on your holiday and everything in life is tickety-boo? See, that's how many Western Christians, dare I say most Western Christians, measure God's love for them when things are going well for them. See, just check it out. We doubt God's love when our health is stripped away from us, when we're in pain, when terminal illness hits, when redundancy strikes and when we find ourselves unemployed, when the effects of the credit crunch have grabbed us, when we're struggling financially or feeling lonely or suffer inconvenience in our lives. Someone suffering excruciating pain through bad health very honestly said to me, I'm finding it hard to believe that God loves me. I'm even wondering if God's there. Now, in so many ways, that is understandable, but it is a precarious way to live because hard times will strike. As we said two weeks ago, all we have to do is live long enough and we will suffer. So am I to doubt God's love every time life is tough? It's a very 21st century way to think, very very 21st century Western way to think. Consider the millions of Christians all over the world who have very little who live in the grip of drought and famine, who suffer at the hands of cruel dictators, who fear for their lives and have been incarcerated just because they are Christians, if they were to measure God's love on the basis of their health or wealth or circumstances, they certainly wouldn't follow Jesus Christ. So Christian, how do you know that God loves you? Listen to how the Bible answers that question. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 God demonstrates his own love for us in this. How does that verse continue? 
God demonstrates his own love for us in this, in that uh, he gives us good health and meets our material needs and gives us a trouble-free, hassle-free, problem-free existence? No. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I know God loves me because Jesus died for me. As I eat bread and wine today, I know God loves me. The cross of Jesus Christ, you see, is the place where God's love has been supremely, objectively and definitively demonstrated for us. And so when I am suffering, I am to look at the cross. I won't have all the answers to my suffering, but at the cross, I do know what the answer isn't. It can't be that God doesn't love me. In suffering, then, God loves us. Secondly, in suffering, God understands my suffering. See, those who've been through suffering will be able to say that it is wonderfully comforting to meet others who have suffered as I have. Um, Jerry Sitzer, uh, in writing this book, A Grace Disguised, I've mentioned it uh, in the last couple of weeks, it's uh, one of our um, essential Christian library books for this term. Uh, He wrote this book after uh, he he was involved in a terrible car accident in which his uh, his wife, uh, his mother and uh, one of his daughters died. Uh, He was in the car, as were the whole family. Uh, uh, Three of the children survived, uh, but his wife, his mother um, and his daughter died. And uh, so he wrote this book following that car crash, uh, a car crash which incidentally happened because of a drunk driver, which makes it even harder. And after writing this book, Jerry Sitzer tells of the many letters he received from others who'd suffered, many of them expressing huge comfort in knowing that someone else knew what it was to suffer significant loss. Now for sure, when I meet others who've suffered as I have, I still have to cope with my own loss and pain and suffering. And actually, Jerry Sitzer helpfully explains that, I think it's in the first chapter, that comparing my loss with someone else's is not helpful. Yet that said, there is something wonderfully comforting in meeting others who've suffered as I have. Now amazingly, when I look at the cross of Jesus Christ, I see a God who has suffered in every way that we suffer. And so as I meet God at the cross, I meet a God who understands my suffering. That is wonderfully comforting. And it is quite a remarkable thought. You will not find in any other religion of the world a God who has suffered or who understands what it is to suffer through suffering himself. Uh, the, 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 the cross tells us a number of ways that, uh, that God has suffered. I haven't lifted them all, but I, I've put down five. Firstly, God has suffered death. In Jesus dying on the cross, the Son knows what it is to experience death and the Father knows the agony of seeing his one and only Son die. It was some years ago now when I was uh, working in London, I was leading a Christianity Explored course and the question of suffering kept being raised each week as we met on, on a little table within part of the course. It was a real sticking point for one couple who were on the course and during the fourth week of the course they raised the question of suffering again. The husband, it seemed, was frustrated that we just hadn't covered it as comprehensively as we should have done over the previous three weeks. And his frustration came out. He told his story. It turned out that that he and his wife had lost a son. And as he told his story in frustration, the husband said, so what does God know about losing a son? And as he said it, there was a hush around the table and he realised what he'd said because earlier in the evening we'd been thinking about the cross 
And with tears welling up in his eyes, he said, oh, I see now, God does understand, doesn't he? Now, that didn't mean that all the answers came. It doesn't mean that there were still weren't questions. There were, but it was a turning point. Over the next weeks, he and his wife knew that they were engaging with a God who knew their pain. Not merely in the sense that God knows everything, but because he'd experienced it. At the cross then, we see that God has suffered death. Secondly, we see that God has suffered physical pain. Uh, The cross was excruciatingly painful. I think it's actually very striking that the Gospel writers don't make a big deal about the physical suffering of Jesus. That's not their main point, but it is there. Uh, Turn with me to Mark chapter 15, if you will, uh, page 1022. And as uh, you turn, we'll see how Jesus suffered physically. Mark chapter 15, uh, verse 17. Speaking of the soldiers, they put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. Verse 19, again and again they struck him on the head with a staff. In in verse 21, we, we read that Jesus was so weak that he couldn't carry his own cross. The physical suffering had been so immense that he couldn't carry his own cross. And then verse 25, we read, it was the third hour when they crucified him. They crucified him. Just three words... But behind those three words uh, lies uh, terrible suffering, uh, suffering untold. This is how uh, one uh, Bible uh, commentator explains the suffering of Jesus on the cross. Simon is ordered to place the patibulum on the ground and Jesus is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. The patibulum is then lifted in place at the top of the stipes, the vertical beam. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot with both feet extended, toes down, A nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down, with more weight on the nails in the wrists, excruciating fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet, Again, there is the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps come the inability to push himself upward. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and to bring in the life-giving oxygen. Hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, 
searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain, deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It's now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The body of Jesus is now in extremis and he can feel the chill of death creeping creeping through his tissues. Jesus suffered terribly. And I know there are many who suffer pain that is almost unbearable in this life. I think of some of the terminally ill I've visited. Uh, While drugs and palliative care often makes the final days of someone's life relatively comfortable, still the weeks and months leading up to death can be unbelievably painful. As I've visited the terminally ill, when I've known them to be committed Christian people with the certainty of eternity with Christ, I've prayed that the Lord would take them. Some have to suffer terrible physical pain. But look at this. Our God knows what it is to suffer physically. Isn't that comforting? Thirdly, uh, God has suffered injustice. See, at Jesus' first trial before the Sanhedrin, uh, we read this in, in Mark chapter 14 and verse 55, just back a page, Mark 14:55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they didn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements didn't agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days we'll build another, not made by man. Yet even their testimony didn't agree. In Mark chapter 15, as he stood before Pilate, we we see it again, this this false testimony. Uh, So that actually Pilate can say in verse 14 of chapter 15, What crime has he committed? Why do you want him crucified? What crime has he committed? Suffering unjustly happened to Jesus. It is a dreadful experience, isn't it, to suffer unjustly? It is terrible when people are accused and imprisoned for a crime that they haven't committed. Uh, In last Sunday's newspaper, I read that a, a Serbian man has admitted to the murder of the BBC television presenter, Jill Dando, that happened back in April 1999. It was a reminder for me as I read this uh, that Barry George was wrongly arrested and convicted of her murder. Remember, he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison in 2001. Then new scientific evidence raised doubts over his involvement and his conviction was quashed and in 2008 he was unanimously acquitted in a retrial. Now, I don't don't know if you you remember a year back when that news uh, broke. I remember feeling the outrage of it, uh, uh, almost the the, the feeling of the pit in my stomach. This man had been denied freedom for seven years of his life. Seven years that can never be retrieved. Suffering unjustly is a terrible thing. And even when it's not that acute, we we do feel it keenly. If If you've suffered unjustly, you'll know what I'm saying. When I was in London, I worked with Christians in the workplace. And regularly through the years that I did that, I sat with Christians who'd been treated badly at work. They were terribly churned up. They'd missed out on promotion or a pay rise or even lost a job. Sometimes it wasn't even that. It was the thought that their name had been dragged through the mud that left them devastated. Unjust suffering is a terrible thing. It eats away at us. It affects people's health, their livelihood, their mental well-being, their family, everything. 
Think of that Christian nurse who lost her job recently offering to pray with a patient. Injustice causes great suffering. Now look, if you've suffered that way, then know that at the cross, God knows he suffered injustice. And then fourthly, God has suffered rejection and insult. Again, you see the soldiers in Mark chapter 15, verse 18, called out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! The passers-by in verse 29 hurled their insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Jesus suffered terrible insults. Remember when you were at school being called names in the playground? Remember that? I do. And I remember the little rhyme that I, that I called back. Sticks and stones may, hurt, may break my bones, but na- names can never hurt me. Do you remember saying that? I often said it at school, but it's not true, is it? Names do hurt me. Being wrongly accused is painful. Being rejected is lonely. God has experienced that. Now do you see the point? When I look at the cross, I meet a God who has suffered in every way as we do. Despair, rejection, loneliness, poverty, bereavement, torture, imprisonment, death. God has suffered in every way. And so when I suffer, I can come to a God who understands. Don Carson, in his book, How Long, O Lord, uh, puts it like this. He says, when Christians think seriously about evil and suffering... One of the paramount reasons we are so sure that God is to be trusted is because he sent his son to suffer cruelly on our behalf. Jesus Christ, the son who is to be worshipped as God, God's own agent in creation, suffered an excruciatingly odious and ignominious death. The God on whom we rely knows what suffering is all about, not merely in the way that God knows everything, but by experience. Isn't that reassuring? And isn't that comforting? And isn't it quite remarkable? When you suffer and when you talk to the living God about your pain, he knows, he understands, he not only sympathises, but he empathises with you. He has been there. Again, listen to the words of Jerry Sitzer as he reflects on this same point. The incarnation means that God cares so much that he chose to become human and suffer loss, though he never had to. I have grieved long and hard and intensely, but I have found comfort knowing that the sovereign God, who is in control of everything, is the same God who has experienced the pain I live with every day. No matter how deep the pit into which I descend, I keep finding God there. See, in the cross of Jesus, we meet the God who has suffered. And that should be wonderfully comforting and reassuring. But before we leave this point, there is one way in which God has suffered, which is at the very heart of the cross. Uh, The fifth point on the sheet there, God has suffered broken relationship. Uh, we, We see that Jesus suffered the loneliness of being rejected by his followers. They all deserted him. Uh, In Mark chapter 14, verses 66 to 72, even Peter denied Jesus after he'd sworn that he never would. Jesus knew the loneliness of being abandoned, and many here will have felt that. 
The devastation of being betrayed by a loved one, a teenager's rejection, a a spouse's infidelity, a friend's desertion, a parent's abandonment. Jesus knows about that. And while that's important, that's not actually the abandonment that I want to focus on in this fifth point. No, it is this. Jesus experienced the broken relationship with his father. And that is the most important aspect of the suffering of Christ. For here, in this broken relationship, we discover something more than knowing that Jesus is with us in our difficulties, wonderful as that is. Here we discover that there is hope in our suffering. The hope that there is something beyond our suffering. See, the most devastating abandonment, the most devastating rejection, the most awful broken relationship that has ever happened in the history of the universe happened at the cross. It's there in the words in Mark chapter 15, verse 34, as Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, there we see Jesus was God forsaken. At that moment, Jesus experienced the most acute pain that anyone has ever felt. See, in John chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus is described as being at the Father's side, or better, in the Father's bosom. Jesus has a relationship of absolute intimacy with his Father. Always has done, for all eternity. From before the world began and forever, the Father and the Son have been in perfect unity and harmony. They've never had a crossword. They've never disagreed. They've never been at loggerheads. And yet on the cross, that most glorious relationship was ended, ripped apart. And so Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now listen to how... Uh, Tim Keller uh, puts, uh, makes the point that this was so, so terrible. There may be no greater inner agony than the loss of a relationship we desperately want. If a mild acquaintance turns on you, condemns and criticises you, and she says she never wants to see you again, it is painful. If someone you're dating does the same thing, it is qualitatively more painful But if your spouse does this to you, if one of your parents does this to you when you're still a child, the psychological damage is infinitely worse. He goes on, We cannot fathom, however, what it would be like to lose not just spousal love or parental love that has lasted years, but the infinite love of the Father that Jesus had from all eternity. Jesus' sufferings would have been eternally unbearable. See, it's that suffering that the Bible emphasises throughout the passion of Christ. Yes, he suffered physical death. Yes, he suffered physical pain. Yes, he knew injustice and rejection and insult. But it was the separation from the Father that caused him so much pain. That was the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane. That was the ultimate pain on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That cry of dereliction was deeply relational. And God was prepared to suffer that for you and for me. That is how we know God loves us. In his book, uh, Why I'm a Christian, uh, John Stott writes this. In the course of my travels, I've entered a number of Buddhist temples in different Asian countries. I've stood respectfully before a statue of the Buddha his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, serene and silent, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to turn away 
And in my imagination, I turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. The crucified one is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us, dying in our place in order that we might be forgiven. Our sufferings become manageable in the light of this. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolises divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. See, the suffering of a broken relationship with the Father. And that leads to our final point. Point one, in suffering God loves us. Secondly, in suffering God understands my suffering. And in Thirdly, in suffering, God ends suffering. See, so far we've said that God's suffering on the cross demonstrates his love for us, and yet we ought to ask how. How does a man's death show me his love? Look, if in a moment of devoted love for Caroline, I said to her, her, look, I'll show you how much I love you, Caroline, and I ran out into the road and in front of a passing bus and was instantly killed, how would that demonstrate my love for her? That is just a needless loss of life. And I guess Caroline might say, what do you do that for? She might even say in frustration, you idiot. You'd have shown your love for me far more by staying here with me, supporting me, providing for me, helping me raise my children. But let me change the picture just a little and we'll see exactly how a death demonstrates love. Caroline is in the middle of the road and she doesn't see the bus coming and I shout to Caroline, I'll show you how much I love you as I throw myself in front of the bus, pushing her out of the way, saving her life and in the process losing mine. I love this illustration, it makes me look like a macho man, doesn't it? It sounds great. But you see, that is the demonstration of love. And all the more if I did it not for my wife but for my greatest enemy. That's what God did. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, in that while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And he made that sacrifice to end my suffering. See, as Jesus died, he put me in the right with God. Jesus died to save me from the full force of God's anger. A force that is hurtling at at me with all the force, not of a bus, or even a juggernaut, but of a meteor. Jesus was God-forsaken so that I might not have to be. On the cross, he suffered hell, separation from the Father, so that I might not have to. And so God suffers to end our suffering, both the suffering of hell that would be ours, and the death and suffering that blights our world now, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, the Bible writers can say things like this, Isaiah 25, 8, death has been swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 55, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Isaiah 53, 4, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. See the point at the cross, Jesus suffers to end suffering. As Jesus' death secures eternity for us, where there will be no more pain or suffering, no more mourning or tears, no more death. In suffering, God ends suffering. What love! 
And what a glorious future he's won for us. I think I'm only going to ever really grasp how wonderful this eternity is when I am with Jesus in eternity. When we are finally with Jesus, we'll not just feel the relief that we're free from the suffering of the past 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, but because we've lived with suffering and because Jesus has suffered, what we'll experience in eternity is greater than it could have been without suffering. Uh, Tim Keller makes the point well. He puts it like this. Every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make the eventual glory and joy even greater. He explains it by telling of a dream he had. He says this, A few years ago I had a horrible nightmare in which I dreamed that everyone in my family had died. When I awoke, my relief was enormous. But there was much more than just relief. My delight in each member of my family was tremendously enriched. I looked at each one and realised how grateful I was for them, how deeply I loved them. Why? My joy had been greatly magnified by the nightmare. My delight upon awaking took the terror up into itself, as it were, so that in the end my love for them was only greater for my having lost them and found them again. Uh, Keller goes on as he writes this, The doctrine of the resurrection can instill us with a powerful hope. It promises that we will get the life we most long for, but it will be an infinitely more glorious world than if there had never been the need for bravery, endurance, sacrifice or salvation. C.S. Lewis writes the same point slightly differently. He says, they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn agony into a glory. His point is wonderful. Eternity will be more glorious because of suffering. And of course the most glorious thing in eternity will be to be in the presence of the one who has suffered for us. We will love Jesus more and see more his greatness and his kindness and his glory than we could ever have done had he not suffered for us. So yes, we will have questions in a world of suffering. But what is certain is that suffering works to glorify God and suffering both ours and mostly his will give us an even greater joy for eternity than we could have ever had without it. Just after the climax of the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, Sam Gamgee discovers that his friend Gandalf was not dead as he thought, but alive. And he cries, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer of Christianity to that question is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue. And it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. Let's pray together.